Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. As a community, we are learning the way of Jesus and serving our city. Redemption Hill is kind of different. We are a collective of micro churches that gather together on Sundays to grow and connect and worship. So don't wait anymore. Join us Sundays at Boise Friends Church in the gym at 10.30 a.m. and get connected to the community you need in this season of your life. All the details you need are at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the training and teaching time from this week's gathering. Stay tuned after the sermon for more info on how to get connected. Last week was a beautiful Sunday to be together, right? It was just so, so great to spend Easter as a family, all the kids going crazy outside. Whose kids have just been awful this week because they ate way too much candy, didn't get enough sleep? Yeah, man. Marge is like my 25-year-old is a real handful. <laughs> uh, we're, we're starting a new sermon series today, and, you know, I don't, I don't think Bob saw the vision in it, uh, but I, this, this is what it is. Robes, candles, smells, and bells, how God gave the world his kingdom with new priests, new temples, and a radical new approach to worship. Um, we are, we're diving into probably a, a different sermon series than you've ever, um, you've ever spent time in, because what we're going to do is we're going to be looking back at what priests are, then we're going to be looking forward and asking what does it mean that we are a royal priesthood. Uh, The resurrection that we celebrated last week, it marked a transformation of all creation. It's not just an event that happens and um, all of a sudden, you know, it opened up some new space for us as Christians to connect with God. It literally marks the end of one epoch, one age, one, one millennia, and opens up a new epoch or millennia. When Christ dies on the cross, many, many things were transformed. Christ defeats death, as we talked about last week. He made way for the life of the kingdom. In his resurrection, we are invited to experience the newness of life that comes from walking with Christ. Um, we see we are, we are given eternal life so that this, this body is no longer the only place where our souls will reside. We, are in, we enter into the resurrection immediately. Um, But there's one piece I think that we often overlook that shows up again and again throughout the New Testament. I think this is going to shed light on what it means to be Jesus' people. In Matthew 27, verse 50, if you got your Bibles, you can turn there. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. It says this. Then Jesus shouted out, and he released his spirit. At that moment, the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, The earth shook, rocks split apart, tombs open, the bodies of many godly men and women who had died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery after Jesus' resurrection. They went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. Now, I read this last week when we were talking with the kids about how the power of the resurrection literally brought to life corpses that were sitting around Jerusalem that were prepared for that day to be the first gospel speakers the ones that would walk and and speak of this Jesus who brings the dead to life. But there's something else that happens in there. So we've got this earthquake. Um, We know that from like 3 to 6 p.m., there's some sort of eclipse where all the, the, the whole world, the lights go out as a representation of Jesus, the light of the world being snuffed out by death. 
this earthquake happens, and during this earthquake, within the temple, there's three sections of the temple. There's the outer courts, there's the holy place, and then there's the holy of holies. And in that holy of holies, between the holy of holies and the holy place, is only separated by this massive tapestry, a curtain that was so thick you can't imagine it being ripped, but it was, it was ripped in two, and it was the thing that held back God's presence from entering into all the world. It's a, it's a tiny little verse, but I think it means so much for us as Jesus followers. So, so what is it? Why does it matter? Okay, well, first, what is the temple? The temple isn't just a nice building. It's not, it's not simply the place where they do worship. And I think that we as, um, as 20th century people who have gone to church, we equate what we do in church buildings with the temple. But it's radically different. The temple itself was, it started out as a mobile temple. So when we do mobile church, I like to think that's how God started too. He started in a tent, actually. It was called the tabernacle. And when God set apart for himself his people in Israel, he gave them a special tent. He gave them all sorts of instructions on how to prepare the tent because the tent was to only have one purpose. A singular purpose. That's, that's what holy means. That's what consecrated means. It means set apart for a particular purpose. And the, the tabernacle was set apart as a dwelling place for God's presence with his people. Okay? So when God set aside for himself the Israelites after they had come out of Egypt, they could all of a sudden enjoy God's presence in a way that they had never had before because they as a people had been set apart for a particular purpose so that God could dwell with them. From the beginning of time, God has wanted and desired and worked for all of humanity to enter into his presence. It started out in the garden where, um, G where the Father, the, the Creator, spent time in the garden uninhibited by any sort of sin or shame or brokenness that the humans had, he could enter in fully into their presence in a way that we could only imagine. And then sin enters the picture, and God himself doesn't remove himself from the garden. What does he do? He sends the people away because they cannot be near him. They, in their sin, in their shame of their sin, they, they would be destroyed by God's presence because they'd be overwhelmed with shame. That's, that's why sin and God don't mix. It's not because it's poison to God for us to be close to him. It's because it destroys humanity when an unholy people are before a holy God. Um, it's much like when, I, I thought of so many stories for this, I'm just gonna say one of my kids, it could have been any of the four of them, do something and then uh, my, my, one of my sons in particular, he, he gets found out and he literally like covers his head and can't look up. Like no matter what I do, no matter how I, how I try to reassure him that he's okay in my presence, he's, he has to cover himself. And that sort of shame that leads to death is the kind of shame that comes from our sin being in the presence of God. So God protects us from it so that we don't want to destroy ourselves. Isn't, 
Isn't that crazy? And so God has been working throughout history to give people a sense of his presence. And finally, once he had established for himself a people who were called and set apart for his purpose, they could be the ones who could maybe just a little bit, maybe even just one day a year, one of them could be set apart for a particular purpose, which is to be in God's presence and bring before him a sacrifice. This is what the temple was about. It was about God's presence and God's power. It was set up as a throne room. Um, it kind of uh, it mirrored um, what happens in the heavenly throne room. So when they built the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant has a throne on top of it where God's literal, like his presence would sit on it like it was a throne room in heaven. If you guys all watch that like sweet 90s sci-fi movie, Stargate, it's excellent. You should go watch it if you haven't. James Spader, it's phenomenal. Kurt Russell, good, who doesn't mind a good Kurt Russell sci-fi movie? Um, but the, the premise of it is that there's these gates that would open where it would have this gateway that had to be set just right in between these planets and this wormhole would open up. And that's kind of what's happening in the temple is the Israelites are trying to create a space that's like the, king, the king's room. It's like his his uh, heavenly throne room that we see in Isaiah. And they're trying to create a space for God to feel at home among his people. So there's this temple. It's a consecrated place. It's the center of the life of Israel. Um, the second temple was built um, in, the, in the Hasmonean dynasty around 300 B.C. And um, it was... It was, un, it was never under an independent Israel. They were always under vassal kings, and, and they had lived in exile. And so the sem, second temple was like a, it was a kingdom within a vassal kingdom. So it was this, it was the center of the people of Israel because they had no authority. All the, their king had been deposed. There was no real king of Jerusalem or of Israel at that point. And so the temple itself, they liked to think, was God's throne room and was their um, it was the castle where God himself ruled. Uh, okay, so let's keep going on. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the temple and why he exists because when we see Jesus show up, he has direct conflict with the temple. Basically from the start, Jesus and the temple leaders don't get along because the temple and the second temple particularly was corrupt. It was corrupt top to bottom. From the, the high priest who was, it, the only reason you were the high priest was because it was like, it was a lot like the Sopranos. If you killed the right people, you got to be high priest. That was the way that it worked. It was basically a mafia. Um, the Sanhedrin was this group of people whose families could, they were a part of the Aaronic priesthood, so they had come from the line of Aaron, and they could themselves, their families, could possibly be high priests. And it was run by lawyers, and you know that a place is corrupt as soon as lawyers enter the picture. It means that there's too much money and too much power, and the lawyers smell blood. So when the, the lawyers come in, the scribes are running the house. And in the temple, in the second temple in particular, it was the only place where Jews had power and money because all of the rest of the Jewish people from the... Um, from the exile, those who lived among uh, not just the Samaritans, but the Egyptians, the Persians, all around the Middle East, they would come there for festivals throughout the year, and they would have to bring with them what? Money. 
sacrifices, and money. They were required to pay a temple tax, which was an easy way for them. Uh, they couldn't normally do the first fruits because they lived in a different place. They couldn't bring with them um, the first tenth that they had been given to give to the Levites as a gift. And so they would bring money as a temple tax to cover their tenth. And then they would also then have to get there. And who here has tried to um, walk several hundred miles with a lamb? I, I haven't either, uh, but I'm just imagining it was probably pretty difficult. And so what would they do? They'd show up, and just like we do, like if, if you've ever traveled for the holidays, you do not pack your gifts and bring them with you. You show up and you buy some gifts there because it's, it's hard work to, to bring them with you. And so they get to Jerusalem, and all the money would pour into Jerusalem. All the wealth would pour into Jerusalem. And they, they came up with this ingenious system that Jesus had a deep problem with where they couldn't, use, they couldn't use the Roman money in the temple because it was Roman money. It wasn't pure money. And so they would have to do a temple exchange with these money changers in the temple courts so that they would have the right money to be able to buy the things that they needed to be right with God. You see how they had monetized? They had, they had created a sales funnel for God. And they were the only ones who could get you what you really needed, right? It's, I imagine it's a lot like shroot bucks in, in the office, where you can only use shroot bucks. It's like 5,000 to 1 sort of a ratio. Um, it was just completely corrupt. And Jerusalem was rich because it had the temple. They abused the exiles. And Jesus comes in as this prophetic actor, and he brought to Jerusalem... He's, Jesus himself was coming to Jerusalem as a spotless lamb so that he himself could be sacrificed by the temple leaders so that the people could be made pure. See what Jesus did there? Just a week before, right in, in Matthew chapter 24, or 20, 27, we see the Sanhedrin and the, the high priests are the ones who are calling for Jesus to be sacrificed. You see how he is literally fulfilling the perfect spotless lamb that they needed to have their sins forgiven. There's, there's just so much going on in the passion narrative, but I, I want to hone in on, on the temple. The temple symbolizes the presence of God in the world, symbolizes the power of God of the world. It's a house and it's a castle. This holy of holies is a throne room. It's meant to mirror the throne room of God. Just like the garden started with God's ubiquitous presence, there was no veil, no curtain, all access, and sin means we must be hidden from his presence. But from the beginning, there have been people. From the very beginning, before there was Israel, before they were saved out of Egypt, there were people who were deeply connected with God who had the role as priest. Before there were temples, there were priests. Before there was the temple, there were priests who gave sacrifices who worshiped the one true God. I know that we all imagine that in Exodus 19, Israel and true worship is, is invented. Like, that's the way we think about it. But what really was going on is, from the beginning of time, there had been people who were deeply connected with God, who were pure of heart, who were spiritually sensitive, who, were, who lived in silence and solitude. So nobody on earth could fulfill this anymore. Nobody lives in silence and solitude anymore. But there was these people who were deeply connected with God. They looked at their being in this world and said, 
I must worship. They just experienced the world and said, I can't help but look to God, the creator, and find a way to please him. And there are still people like that today. I meet people who, even if they don't know Jesus, have this compulsion to know God. They can't help themselves, but in those quiet moments, wonder, what does God want from my life? Let's look at the first priest that we see. This is the very first time we see the word in the Bible in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. Now, Abram, uh, just to situate this story, Lot has been taken captive by the king of Sodom. He's, he's been taken prisoner so that, um, so that they could take all of Abraham's money and blessings. He had been given incredible blessings as he has come into Canaan. And Abraham gets into this war with the king of Sodom and defeats him roundly. Now, now Abraham is, he's, he's one family and he's got some servants who are alongside of him, but it was a tiny tribe, defeats this kingdom of Sodom. Verse 14, after, <clears throat> verse 17, after Abram returned from his victory over Kedar Laomer and all of his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So king of Sodom, he loses the battle. Abraham goes out to meet him. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, now, Salem doesn't show up a lot in the Bible as the word Salem. What does it show up as after this? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is the king of Jerusalem. He's a priest of the Most High God. He brought Abram some wine and bread. And Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by El Elyon, God Most High creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has defeated your enemies for you. And then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. So who the heck is Melchizedek, right? Like just out of nowhere, Abram comes from Iraq, walks a hundred miles through the desert, shows up in Canaan, and God is already there. God is already being worshiped in spirit and in truth by Melchizedek, in the holy city of Zion. Like, that's, that's crazy when you think about it. But when you remember back that we have these lineages from Noah forward, that all of these people descended from the same family. All of them descended from Noah, and God told Noah what to do, right? When he got off the ark, what did Noah do? I'm hearing... Yeah, he, he worshipped. He, he killed a lamb. Noah, right, right at the very re-beginning of creation at the flood, Noah worships in this cultic way. And cultic just means like a religious ceremony. The, the cult of Israel is this, the religious works of true worship, which to God was to take a spotless lamb and to kill it and to see its blood as being poured out in your place. So the sin is taken on by the animal rather than you. And Melchizedek, his family had held true. They had known what true worship was. They knew who El Elyon was. God had not told them his true name, which is Yahweh, I am who I am. So they called him El Elyon, God the Most High, the one who is above all things. He's the king of Salem or Jerusalem. 
Um, and when you look at it, the geography of the ancient religions of the, north, of, the, of the Middle East, out of Jerusalem, you see basically the closer you are to Jerusalem, the more true your religion is to monotheism. Throughout the ancient world, in the Middle East, in the center of it, in Canaan, was where monotheism started, not with Moses, but with Melchizedek. We see him as a representative, the, the priest king from Jerusalem. God is going to show up. Where there is consecrated space and consecrated people, God shows up. God makes himself and teaches people how to create consecrated spaces, set apart places for his, his kingdom to enter in. Because for the most of earth, God's, God's presence, when it enters in, it, it creates judgment and destruction. But in a consecrated place, people can enjoy the pr very presence of God. And then God creates for himself people who can set apart spaces for him. Those are his priests. God is going to show up where there are consecrated spaces. People would go up to mountaintops. We sang about Ebenezer's, these, these monuments to God's faithfulness where people would ask for his blessing of his presence to enter in. It's still true. God's nature hasn't changed. God is still preparing for himself consecrated places and consecrated people so that his presence can be made known and so that he can be truly worshipped in the world. Now we get to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. Now there's, there's kind of two metaphors that are going to work through here. The first one is this architectural metaphor of a temple. Now who's Peter speaking to? That you are, that's all y'all. That's everybody who belongs to God's people. All of you together, you're coming together around Christ, who is the cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. You are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. So you, all y'all, God's people, are the now temple of God's presence where before it was this building that had to be set apart for a particular purpose and God's presence would only come every once in a while. Now that the curtain's been torn, all of a sudden God's presence can enter in and create in us the living place of God's presence in this world. What's more, so not just an architectural, but you are his set-apart priests, his consecrated holy priests, and through the mediation of Jesus Christ, so you are not the priest who made the way to the Father. You are a priest who has been mediated. Now, now there's different roles that priests play. They, they perform sacraments that make a place holy. They um, listen to God and speak for God. They teach people his law. But priests also mediate. They are what we might call like a... Uh, a representative. So the priest himself who goes into the Holy of Holies, the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement and Yom Kippur, and he pours his blood on the atonement seat, he is representing all of God's people. So Jesus himself becomes our great high priest when he mediates between us and God, and he himself 
represents us in, in his sacrifice on the cross. And as the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem. That is Jesus, chosen for great honor, anyone who trusts in him. Now, we talk about trust quite a bit, but that word trust, pistis, or faith, particularly in an architectural sense, is different. It's not someone who thinks that they like that person or um, has a mental assent to his lordship. When you trust something architecturally, what do you do? You build upon it. When, I, when you create a cornerstone, it becomes the center of the building and you build upon it. It's where you, like trust is literally like a, a leaning, a, a putting your, um, your absolute trust in it. And so when Jesus is saying, I'm placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, anyone who trusts in him, who is built on him, will never be disgraced, will never be, that disgraced idea is sent out from God's presence. You will never be heaped on shame again and forced to leave God's presence. You will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor that God has given him. For those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. So Israel rejected Jesus' cornerstone status as the builder of the temple. And the one that they rejected has now become the very cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble. The rocks that make them fall. Um, I don't know if you've ever worked on a job site. Uh, but once a foundation is laid, do you know what you do all day when a foundation is laid? You trip on it. <laughs> like, because it's, it's literally just sitting six inches off the ground and you have to step over it about 600 times while you're preparing for framing. And so all you do is trip on it. And that's what happens with a cornerstone. Unless you're building on it, you're tripping on it. Unless you're building on the cornerstone, you're tripping on the cornerstone. And so those that put their faith in him, they're going to build their lives on this cornerstone. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you're not like that. For you are a chosen people. Now remember, we, we walked through Ephesians the last three months, and we talked about God's plan was to create for himself a people. Now Peter's telling us what kind of people we are. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness and into his wonderful light. See, once you had no identity as a people, and now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, and now you've received God's mercy. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and exiles to keep away from the worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. We, together, are the new temple. Now, the temple, once the curtain's torn, it's going to be in constant turmoil until it is torn apart brick by brick just 40 years later. 70 AD, there's going to be an uprising of the Israelites, and they are going to fight against Rome, and Rome's going to say, we're not putting up with this. And so they tear it apart brick by brick, and it has never been rebuilt. I'm not saying it's a coincidence, 
But God himself tore down that temple and won't allow it to be rebuilt. You know what's on it right now? The dome on the rock. God said, I'm going to give it away to Satan and to Islam so that you don't try to build a temple on it because God's temple is not in Jerusalem. It's not on Mount Zion. God's temple has now left the building. God's temple has become his people. We are being built and growing together like a temple. Later, he, he, he switches metaphors and goes towards a, a body metaphor because it's like once a, once a temple's built, it's done, but a body never stops growing. And so we are his holy priests. We're the ones who are going to be the mediators who are going to bring sacred spaces and sacred people so that the kingdom of God will break into this world. The plan was to create a people who would all bring God's presence into the world because Jerusalem is in one place, in one location, in one country. But God's people can go to every nook and cranny of the globe and bring God's presence. I think that we all know this. And when we, when we think about a kingdom of priests and a royal nation, um, we think about sometimes the Reformation and like the priesthood of all believers. Have you heard that, that term, the priesthood of all believers? That's primarily what this, what this series is about, is us taking seriously this role of priesthood of all believers. Now, after the Reformation, Luther basically said, great, you're priests now, and I want you to sit in those chairs and listen and don't do anything, okay? And that's what they did. They said, you're priests, but you don't actually have a job. You're just, you're just priests, and you, you, don't, you don't actually bring God's presence. You just, when, basically, when we're together, we build this building on Sundays by being together. And then when we leave, you go out and you stop being priests and you stop being the temple. And that's not what they said, but that was the reality of it. And that's the reality of most churches today is that we see what we do on Sundays as the presence of God. And what God says is that when two or more of you are gathered, you are literally his dwelling place. It's through his mercy, not our good works. And God likes his people to live as exiles. You know why? Because exiles can't stay home. Exiles can't stay home. They have to go out. You know why God brought persecution for the first 300 years of the church? Because every time there was persecution, what did the believers do? They scattered. That was God's plan, was to allow them to suffer so that the presence of God would be known in every place and in every heart. And this is what we have to do as God's people, is grab hold of our identity as priests, as bearers of God's presence. We have to set aside this clergy-laity divide, the people versus the priests. Now, I, 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 I go around looking for ideas for sermons, and particularly the beginning of a sermon series. And yesterday I listened to a Catholic bishop talk about this passage and talk about the royal priesthood of all people. And he, he really tripped over himself because he's like, you know, you guys are like priests, but not like... Like, I, like, I'm a, like he, he knew that he shouldn't say it, but, but within Catholicism, they've built this like two, 
two separate structures. There's the, the, real, the real Jesus followers who are the ones who do the sacraments and the ones who are, who are allowed to lead. And then there's the average everyday laity, the people. God smashed those two things together into one people so that the priests don't turn into a sales funnel for God. That's still happening in our world. Churches create these elaborate structures to provide religious services as mediators between God and people. We have to break that down, and you guys have to take hold of your calling and your identity as priests of the one true God. God brings, let's go back to, uh, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will honor God who judges the world. This is the work that we do. Our good works brings God's presence. Now, it doesn't say us being without sin brings God's presence. People imagine holiness doesn't mean without sin. Do you guys know that? Holiness doesn't mean without sin. Holiness means set apart for a particular purpose. It's been consecrated. And so you, you will always have sin, but you will also always be a holy nation because you've been set apart for God's purposes. And people are going to experience God's presence not because you don't cuss, but because you live out the kingdom way. Because you obey your Father in heaven. Because you have committed yourself to being a disciple in the way of Jesus. People will experience God's love because you are his hands and feet. People will experience God's mercy and grace because you are the voice of forgiveness in their life. People will experience connection and love because you have given them hospitality. People will experience the generosity of God because he's taking the money that he gave you and sending it to them. You are literally God's presence. And I know that for many of us, my, my story is I didn't believe that God was real and that God loved me until it was embodied in a person who loved me and cared for me. That's real. That's like it's, it's an abstraction until you experience it. And so like our rabbi Jesus, we sacrifice our lives so that others might see God and walk with him. The kingdom of God's like a virus. It infects people, it transforms them, and then they become bearers and hosts that will multiply it into the world around them. This is the challenge. We need to take our work seriously. There are no Levites and there's no temple. You are the last living hope of God's presence going out in the world. Do you see your identity as a priest? I want you to think about that. Do you, do you think of your identity as the one who brings God's presence? When you prepare to enter into a space, do you guys do that? You get yourself like ready in the car before you like enter into a space? I, I like take a moment. I try to. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I get out of my car and I'm a mess. And I've been listening to NPR and I'm mad about Ukraine and just step into a situation and I'm angry, you know? Like, that's what I sometimes do. But, like, when you prepare to enter into a space, 
do you stop and invite God to be present with you so that when you're with them, you're listening? So that when you're with them, you're giving away his presence so that you're speaking truth and power into people's lives. Do you imagine that God's presence is with you? Or do you pretend like you have a special place where you enter into God's presence? Do you have holy places in your life that that's the only place where you're worshiping God and you're with God? Is this the only place? I hope not. But for a lot of people, church is the only place where they encounter God and they're not bringing with them the reality that God says that his spirit was put inside of you. Your heart was replaced with his heart and you've been transformed. What areas of your life need to be removed because God doesn't like to go into a consecrated place that's being used for other things? That's why God took away the temple from Israel. It's because they used it for other stuff. They used it for graft. They used it for power. They used it for, I mean, there, there was even times where they had temple prostitutes in Jerusalem. They were mixing the religions of the world with their own religions because it gave them what they thought was more power over the natural world. We do the same thing with our bodies. We do the same thing with our lives. Well, we've been set apart to be consecrated as the dwelling place of the Holy Father, and we say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill it with greed, too. I'm going to have this, this dual worship of money and God. And in reality, you worship money, and God doesn't show up anymore because his consecrated place has been defiled. Maybe it's for you sex, pornography, or whatever the sort of fleshly desires that you, Paul, Paul says, you use your bodies like they aren't holy temples of the Lord. But your body was set apart as, a, as, a, as the literal living presence of the Father. And, and we treat sin like it's something that's like uh, trifling, meaningless. When in reality, it's our sin that keeps us from experiencing the presence of God. Because even though the Holy Spirit's in our heart, he's tucked away and he's waiting for opportunities. And until we do the work of repentance, which is to say, I turn away from my way of sin and I reconsecrate the temple. Now, in the first century BC, Antiochus Epiphanes rolls through Jer Jerusalem and he's so mad at the Jews for defiling, or for stopping his, his power that he sacrifices a pig in the Holy of Holies as a way of saying, look at how weak Elohim is. But you know what they did? Once Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes was taken out of power and Rome took over, Jerusalem said, you know what I'm gonna do? We're gonna reconsecrate the temple. They clean out all the pig's blood. They set apart a special day of consecration for the temple. And then they, they pray and they pray and they pray and they fast. And they invite God's presence back into their lives. Some of you need that. Some of you have been on the lamb. Some of you have been living in this abomination of desolation like Antiochus Epiphanes created in Israel where God's presence couldn't be known because the temple had been so defiled. 
And what you need is you need a day of dedication to turn from sin and invite God's presence to be ruler and king, to sit on the throne of the holy of holies of your life. And then you're going to experience this newness of life you've never imagined. It's not going to give you salvation, but it's going to give you daily presence with the Father. That's good news, right? Let me invite the band to come up. And um, we're going to take communion during this last song, but I want to, I want to challenge you. Don't, and, and Paul says this in Corinthians, basically don't take this until you've done the work of repentance. Until you've reconsecrated your body and your life. If you take this, it's judgment upon you. That's what, that's what Paul says. That's not from me, that's what Paul says. And so take a minute, take a few minutes, wait till next week to take communion, whatever it takes, but now's the time to reconsecrate your life with the work of repentance and invitation for God to transform you into what he wants you to be. Lord Jesus, we, we want to grab hold of this truth that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation set apart for your purposes but it feels so far from reality sometimes. We pray, God, that you would give us conviction that as your Holy Spirit is present in our life, it calls us to repentance, to set aside the sin that so easily entangles us. And Lord God, we pray that as we invite your Spirit to have complete power and authority in our lives, that we would look more like you, Jesus. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our weekly podcast. Make sure to subscribe to get them in your podcast feed. You can find ways to connect with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection. Fill out the form for a free gift from us. We care about you and want to help you find your way back to God. Follow at Redemption Boise on Instagram for regular encouragement.